Turn in our Bibles this evening then to the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel in the chapter 16. Ezekiel in the chapter 16, we're going to begin our reading at the verse 1 of the chapter. The word of God says, Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother an Hittite. And as for thy nativity in the day that thou was born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pity thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out into the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou was born." And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, When thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxen great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, and thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was a time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee, and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed thee, and washed away thy blood from thee. And I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger skin. And I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thine hands, and a chain on thy neck, and I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus was I decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom." And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and placed the harlot because of thy renown, and pourest out thy fornications in every one that passed by, his it was. And of thy garments thou didst take and deckest thy high places with divers colors, and placed the harlot thereupon. The like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. Thou hast also taken thy fur jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given thee, and madest to thyself images of men, and didst commit whoredom with them, and tookest thy broidered garments and coverest them, and thou hast set mine oil and mine incense before them. My meat also, which I give thee, fine flour and oil and honey, wherewith I fed thee, Thou hast even set it before them for a sweet savour. And thus it was, saith the Lord God. Ending our reading there at the verse 19 of the chapter. Now we come back to this series entitled The Covenants of God that are given to us here in the Word of God. 
And already in our studies, we have noted three of the Bible covenants. And it is our intention then, in the weeks that remain to us, even of this calendar year, to see out this study, noting the other three covenants that I submit to you are found in the various books of the Old Testament and entering into the New Testament. To refresh our minds, we define the word covenant as being that which is a promise or agreement within a legal framework. We note that it is found in Hebrew using the term berif, and it's found over 280 times in Old Testament Scripture. And 260 of those references are directly translated for us in the authorized version as covenant. Coming into the New Testament, it is the Greek word diatheke, which is found 33 times in New Testament scriptures, and over 20 of those mentions are also translated then as the word covenant. And coming together then and looking at all of these references and comparing like with like, I believe we come to that understanding then that a covenant is a promise or agreement within a legal framework. Now, we see in the Bible, we see covenants made between men. We see covenants made between men and God. But it is, of course, the covenants made by God to men that take up our interest in the bounds of this study. Having noted already the Noahic covenant, having looked at the Mosaic covenant, and also looking at the Abrahamic covenant, we have consumed our time looking at that which sets the stall and a firm foundation upon which the subsequent studies that we come to will follow. Now, to go over each of these will take up too much of our time this evening, and so I recommend to you that if you wish to be refreshed in those matters, that you avail yourself of the recordings of the meetings already undertaken. But as we come to this chapter in Ezekiel, we're beginning to launch, as it were, into the next of the Bible covenants. But we use this passage as a point of reference, if you will, as to the importance of a covenant in scriptural terms. Because looking back upon all that which we've already studied, and of course, with what is to come firmly fixed in our minds in anticipation of all that Scripture will reveal to us, I believe that it's very important that we remind ourselves of the significance that a covenant had in the mind and in the heart of God. And no clear explanation, no clear illustration of that can be found in Scripture, I believe, than is found here in Ezekiel in the chapter 16. And so we come to this passage tonight because already, no doubt, as we've taken our reading in just 19 verses of this chapter, we have noted that the, the chapter uses very stark imagery. And that is all for a purpose. Because the purpose in recording this chapter, I believe, is to testify of the grace and the love of God. Nowhere else in Scripture shines a light upon that truth in any clearer way, any more relevant way, and in any more stark way than the chapter we have entered into this evening. Nowhere else do we get a glimpse of the profound meaning a covenant has to Almighty God like we see it here. And here we are brought face to face with who he is, but also reminded of our own depravity in a very real 
and in a very gory way. This chapter is not for the faint-hearted. It is the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel, and it takes the form of a parable. It is one of a number of parables in this great book, and indeed has the accolade of being the longest parable recorded in Scripture. Now, if you know anything about the prophet Ezekiel, you will know that Ezekiel was never one to mess about. He didn't mince his words. Or like we like to say here in Lurgan, he didn't miss and hit the wall. Every time that he said something, every time that he preached something, he preached to be remembered, he preached to be repeated, and he preached to get home, drive home that point to the hearts of those who were before him. His words were chosen to maximize their impact. And so the entire 63 verses that are given to us in this chapter read as one sorry, one sleazy, and one sordid tale. Indeed, such is the content of this chapter that Spurgeon once said that the detail contained in this chapter meant that it was totally unsuitable for public reading. But none of this should really surprise us. Because if this chapter really does deal with sin, which it does, and if this chapter really is a supreme demonstration of the grace of God, which I submit to you that it is, then the content of it shouldn't shock us nor indeed surprise us. Sin is vile. Sin is ultimate corruption. Sin is unmatched in our universe, and when it comes to the top of the chart of that which is detestable and loathsome, sin sits unrivaled at the very top. But yet sin is also something which, sadly, the people of God in every generation has successfully found a way to paper over, to minimize, and to become conditioned to. To simply accept the manifestation of sin and all of its vileness. Tell me, how does the knowledge of your sin affect you? How does that which you have done today in thought and word and deed against God, how does that move you? Do you shrug your shoulders in defeated acceptance? Do you justify your sin because of something that's going on in your life? Some circumstance or some trial that you're battling with? Something that's filling your time and distracting your attention from following hard after God? Or do you mourn your sin? Does your sin break your heart just as it breaks the heart of your loving Heavenly Father? Unless you think I'm being harsh in you. Unless you say to yourself, I didn't come here for some pious, pompous preacher to lambast me. I freely admit to you that my life is, is so often. In fact, it's true to say too often. Stained by the marks of sin. My life is not the clear looking glass that I would desire it to be. Far too often it's a cloudy, murky mess. A bit like the water in the baptismal tank on Sunday. But far too often I even find ways to justify sin, to accommodate sin, 
to simply accept manifestations in my life of the old nature. And God reminds us this should not be so. And so Ezekiel rolls up and he chooses the most stark of imagery, the most shocking of illustrations, the most seedy of parables to communicate a message to Israel. And that message comes crashing down into our generation, right into our hearts tonight. And the message is simply this, your sin is vile, but God's grace is vast. Your sin is vile, but the grace of God is vast. You see, as much as sin is exposed and led bare in this parable, it remains to be a very powerful tale of the loving kindness and the long-suffering of our Heavenly Father, the God of all grace. So I encourage you as we embark upon a study of this chapter, both tonight and in the study next week, God willing, not to get caught up in the narrative at the expense of missing out on the explanation. For the heavenly truth that God is communicating throughout this chapter is it has been, as has been so well encapsulated by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell in their hymn entitled His Mercy is More. The theme of this message that God is communicating is simply this, Israel, your sins are many. But praise God, his mercy is more. That's what's in view here. Now, as we come to this chapter, it's, it is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. Indeed, as I was preparing this message, I looked back in sermon notes and identified that I have preached 17 times in 15 years of ministry in this chapter. So that's quite a lot when it comes to the scope of things. Quite often, I come to this passage in the gospel, and indeed, I would endeavor to do so whenever we return to our study of the gospel through the Bible and we come to the book of Ezekiel. And now, God willing, that series will recommence after we end our series in hell. But nevertheless, we're coming to this both tonight and next week, God willing, in a teaching matter. And so let us delve into it and see here a clear testimony, yes, of sin, but clear evidence of the grace of God. And remember, we're linking all of this in to our studies of the covenants of God and Scripture. And if you think, well, I don't know how you're going to get there, let's just wait and see how it all works out. But let's see as we enter into the chapter, firstly, her beginning. Her beginning. The Bible tells us, again, the word of the Lord came unto me. This is the prophet Ezekiel. Saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And say, thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem. And so we see here a prophet who is commissioned, a prophet who is sent, a prophet who is given a very particular message from God to the people. The name Ezekiel means strengthened or empowered by God. And once again, as we come to this chapter, and remember, we're well into this book, but nevertheless, the Bible is repeating just how strengthened and empowered he is. For 
there here is clear evidence that what he goes on to say in the verses which follow comes from God himself. So he comes before the people as one called of God, one who brings the message of God. Now Ezekiel's primary ministry was to the nation of Judah. Judah being the southern kingdom, of course, at that time, those who recognized Jerusalem as their capital. But now the people of Judah themselves in the days of Ezekiel were in Babylonian captivity. But undoubtedly, Ezekiel was a man who was granted the wisdom and foresight by God to see Israel as a restored and indeed a reunified nation. This was something that God made very clear to him. Something which underpinned his entire ministry. Now differences in eschatology means that not everyone will see it entirely in the same light. But for me, that foresight that he had given to him by God sees its ultimate fulfillment in the message and indeed the predictions that Ezekiel brings to the people during the days of the millennial kingdom. Subject that he deals with in chapters 40 through 48 of this book. But regardless of your view in these matters, we will all agree that Ezekiel ministered to a nation who were exceedingly sinful and thoroughly hopeless. And so Ezekiel's ministry was therefore twofold. Call out their sin, but also fill their hearts with hope. Expose what they were doing in the light of God's word for being what it truly was in the sight of God. But through it all, remind them who they were in the sight of God and remind them of the promises that God had given to them and would one day fulfill to them. This ministry he accomplished by sharing with them the promises of God regarding the promise of the everlasting possession of the land, an everlasting Davidic prince, and an everlasting covenant. And that's why we come to consider Ezekiel, because those three themes run through the next three covenants that we come to. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11, and we see a little foretaste of this. These promises that are given to him and he gives to the people, reminders of God's program for them, reminders of God's grace being extended to them. Look in chapter 11 and verse 14. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, thy brethren, even thy brethren, the men of thy kindred, and all the house of Israel. Look, the unification of the nation. The unification of the nation. Holy. Are they unto the, uh, whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get you far from the Lord, unto us is this land given in possession. Therefore say, Thus saith the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Therefore say, Thus saith the Lord God, I will even gather you from the people. And assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. 
everlasting possession of the land. And they shall come thither, and they shall take away all detestable things thereof, and all the abominations thereof from thence. And I will give them one heart, and will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart of their flesh, um, uh, out of their flesh, and I will give them an heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances to do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, an everlasting covenant. But as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord God. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Afterwards the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to them of the captivity. So the vision that I had seen went up from me. Then I spake unto them of the captivity all the things that the Lord had showed me. And so here in chapter 11 he's given a message. And in the chapters which follow, which include our chapter, chapter 16, he goes on then to relate that message. He goes on to explain that message. He goes on to further cement that message in the hearts and minds of the people, exposing their sin, filling their hearts with hope. It says, responsibility, is it not? To deal with these truths in light of their reality, their present reality. That's why he says in verse 25, I speak unto them of the captivity. He's addressing a people who know captivity. Some have been born in captivity. Some have never known anything other than captivity. And this is where he calls out their sin. Highlighting the truth that this is the reason that they were in captivity, but all the while testifying to the grace of God and remaining faithful to all that he had committed and covenanted to do. And so we come to chapter 16, and the narrative begins with a reminder of how it all began for them. It says in the verse 3, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, thy mother an Hittite. As for, thy uh, as for thy nativity in the day that thy was born, thy navel was not cut, neither was thy washed in water to supple thee, thy was not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pity thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thy was cast out into the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thy was born. Here God reminds them, Israel, you've had, to be, you've had your beginnings among the idolatrous tribes of Canaan. Abraham, the father of the faithful, was, of course, called by God to leave earth the Chaldees. He was called by God to leave the pagan lands behind and to travel to a place, of, a land which God would show him. But you know, that call of Abraham began a very clear and a very evident trend. It continued through the days of Isaac. It continued through the days of Jacob. It continued through the life of Joseph and then to the days whenever a new king arose in the land of Egypt. And that trend was this. 
that they were as a people continually despised by the inhabitants of the lands in which they dwelt. That's clear, abundantly clear. But nowhere was this more clearly seen than, of course, in the days of their Egyptian captivity. This was really the time when they emerged as a nation, whenever their numbers multiplied, whenever they were of such strength and of such number that the Egyptians who they lived alongside were afraid of them. The Bible tells us in chapter 1 of Exodus then that taskmasters were set over the Israelite people to afflict them. The Egyptians were grieved because of the children of Egypt. They made their lives bitter, the Bible tells us in Exodus in the chapter 1. You come into chapter 2 and we read how this then affected the Israelites because they sighed by reason of their bondage. They cried by reason of their bondage. This is exactly what we're told of here in Ezekiel. How there was none that pitied them. How there was none that had compassion on them. How there was even that abandonment of them as a nation, of them as a people. And here in this chapter, a picture is painted of an abandoned, unwanted child. And you and I may come to this today and we may think to ourselves, well, that's a strange thing. That doesn't happen too often. That's an out-of-the-ordinary experience. That's a reprehensible thing, you might say. But this was something that the Israelite nation was well accustomed to. You see, captivity had begun with a long march. A long march in which they were prodded like cattle and beat along the way. They were cajoled every step by bloodthirsty and battle-hardened barbarians in the form of the Assyrian army. Numerous other captivity marches ensued. And time and again, the people saw the heartbreaking scene of a woman with child delivering that child upon the road of that march. And having delivered that child, this little one then was unceremoniously ripped from her arms and left naked and abandoned by the roadside as the march continued. No love, no care. This little one was found with its umbilical cord still attached the residue of childbirth scarring and marring its image. It was dirty, it was smelly, it was all alone, exposed to the elements and headed for certain death. Now this sorry truth found its way into the Israelite psyche because in days of captivity we know from various records that Israelite mothers abandoned their children even in captivity. Why? Because girl children in, in, in particular were counted worthless, unworthy of a place within the home. They were of no use. They produced no earnings. They were of little value and counted of little worth to them and indeed to their captors. And so time and time again, the Israelite people saw images of abandoned children all around them. God says, Israel, remember, this was your beginning. As you came forth as a nation, you were abandoned, unwanted, despised, neglected, regarded as worthless. 
what began in the days of Joseph as disdain at your occupation as shepherds, soon graduated to full-blown resentment, undisguised hatred, and cruel captivity. All meaning that the children of Israel were in a helpless and a hopeless condition. Their enemy intent in presiding over their demise. And, if luck would have it, their ultimate extinction. That's what these pagan nations desired above everything else. And so we see her beginning. But notice in verse 7 and 14, her blessing. Her blessing. What was the result of all of this? Well, look there in the verse 6. God passed by. When I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when I was in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when I was in thy blood, live. God passed by. He saw. He spoke. Now we know in Exodus that the Bible records how God heard their cry. He heard the cry of Israel. He heard their sigh. He heard their groaning. And God came to their deliverance. Even in all the times of hardship and distress, he continually proves that his providential will is being carried out. Even when that oppression desired their extinction, God overruled and they were preserved. And not only preserved, but despite all the odds being against them, God supernaturally increased their number. That's what we read off in the book of Exodus. The whole, as it were, machine of the state in Egypt was against them. The command was given, don't let those children live. But yet through it all, God increased their number more and more and more. That's given to us in this account. Look in verse 7. I caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field. Thou hast increased and waxen great. Thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned. Thine hair is growing. Whereas thou was naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. You see, in verse 6, we see how God identified the need, how God heard the cry of the abandoned one. And in spite of a very evident sentence of death, he spoke one word and life was granted. In verse 7, we see that he caused them to multiply. In verse 8, we see how that he entered into a covenant with them. And this is the moment that we believe uh, from Bible commentary that this is a moment identified as when God married Israel. Because remember, the nation of Israel is always referred to in Scripture as God's wife. The church is his bride, but Israel was his wife. And so we see this is a part where he entered into that covenantal relationship with them. And remember, this was the underpinning fact of all of his dealings with Israel to Abraham. He had promised a perpetual seed. They were his people. He was their God. 
Look in verse 9, he says, I washed thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee. I anointed thee with oil, I clothed thee also with broidered uh, work, and shod thee with badger skin, girded thee with fine linen, covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, put bracelets upon thy hands, a chain on thy neck. I put a jewel in thy forehead, earrings in thine ears, a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus was thy decked with gold and silver. Thy raiment was of fine linen and silk, embroidered work, thou didst eat fine flour, honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. Here we have a record that the provision that God gave was an abundant one, a generous one, a lavish one. All meaning that this young girl grew up to be an outstanding, beautiful woman. She went from being an outcast to becoming one of the most favored of nations, a witness to all of his majesty, of his grace and his power. All knew that she was specially favored. Cast your mind back to this time last year approximately. When we began our series in the covenants looking at their meaning but also looking at the one who made or entered into these covenants. And remember at that point that we rightly identified that God, the God of this provision, was the God who can and the God who will. So surely tonight as you survey your own life, as you survey your own experience here on earth, you see time and time again the truth of an unfailing God at work in your circumstances. An unfailing God at work in your pain. An unfailing God at work in your suffering. An unfailing God present in the good times, but also present in the hard times. Surely you too identify a time or indeed times whenever sighing and crying under the weight of life's burdens, God heard your cry. God came to your deliverance. And surely you can trace your spiritual journey back to the point when lost and abandoned, marred, filthy and stained by your sin, when faced with the certainty of death, eternal death, the Savior passed by. The Savior heard your cry. When none I pitied you, the Savior pitied you. When none had compassion on you, the Savior had compassion. And there in a moment he spoke a word, a word which relieved and released you of that old burden of sin, a word which gave you hope and a future, a word which brought life, eternal life to you. Tonight you may be here burdened and overwhelmed. For you it's impossible to see the wood for the trees because of all that's going on in your life right now. But identify in this story your place. Your place is the object of Christ's affection. Your place is the one to whom he has entered into a loving and living and lasting relationship with. Your place in his covenantal love. You are his, and he is yours. 
No man shall sever, and none shall pluck you out of the Father's hand. His forever, only his, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light and soon decline, but while God and I shall be, I am his. He is mine. Tonight he has given us his oil, that which is spoken of in verse 13, the very presence of the Holy Spirit within. For oil, remember, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit in Scripture consistently. And that spirit that is within us, his spirit, witnesses to our spirit that we are the children of God. And tonight we can say like the psalmist did, whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Why? Because I will never leave thee. I will never forsake thee. And so tonight, one and all, Surely we find our place. We identify our place as the one in this story who has received an abundant provision, a generous provision, a lavish provision, a provision that has made us into that which we never thought we could be, that which we never deserved to be. But God who is rich in mercy, with his great love, or with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Hath quickened us together with Christ by grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We are trophies of his grace. We are everlasting reminders of his power, his love, his mercy. So tonight, do as scripture encourages you to do, as you behold the kindness and the goodness and the love of God that has been so evident and so clearly demonstrated over and over and over and over again in your spiritual journey. Rejoice. Rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice for all the glorious things that were done by him. Rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he hath, he hath done. Rejoice for you too now have known great blessing just as this girl who is now a woman just as she could testify of all the goodness that had been shown to her, you can testify of God's goodness to you. Her beginning. Her blessing. But notice her backsliding. Begins in verse 15. And here's another but of the Bible. But this is not a good but. After all the joy that has been spoken of up until this point, everything now changes. And tragedy is what we read of now. 
but I just trust in thine own beauty. Place the harlot because of thy renown. And poured out thy fornications on every one that has passed by. His it was. Now we don't have time tonight. It's quickly evaporating before us. But this whole backsliding is given to us right down to the end of verse 34. And I would encourage you to go home and read it in your own time. And survey just the wreckage and the carnage that is littered right across the landscape of this woman's life from here on in. There's little value, I believe, in dwelling for a significant amount of time upon the sins mentioned here. In truth, all that you will read off as you go down through those verses is just evidence of how vile and wretched the heart and the desires of man truly are. But what is worthy of our consideration is the two reasons identified in the Word of God as to why she ever went this way. The first of these is given to us in the verse that we've just read together, the verse 15. Pride. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty. Pride. There came a point evidently in the life of this woman when she began to believe that all she had, all she was, was because of her. It was her comeliness. It was her beauty which had all allowed her to establish this prominent place in the world. And entertaining these thoughts and desires meant that this woman simply craved more and more. She was insatiable in her desire and lust after affection, after attention, after adoration. She was quite literally willing to do anything to acquire it. Social norms were cast aside. The marriage vows that had been entered into were counted, counted as worthless. She was willing to give herself to anyone. And all that had been given to her, all that lavish provision that she had received is simply spent in chasing after and fulfilling her deepest, vilest desires. Come to verse 21. That thou hast slain my children, delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them. Children are counted of little value and worth, sacrificed, caused to pass through the fire. Come to verse 26 through 29, thou committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors. Great of flesh, increase thy whoredoms to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I have stretched out mine hand over thee and diminished thine ordinary food and delivered thee unto the will of them that hate thee, the daughters of the Philistines, which are ashamed of thy lewd way. Thou hast played the whore also with the Assyrians, because thou wast unsatiable, yet thou hast played the harlot with them, and yet couldst not be satisfied. Thou hast, moreover, multiplied thy fornication in the land of Canaan unto Chaldea, and yet thou wast not satisfied herewith. There was no limitations. There was no boundaries. Nothing that would have been considered a structure of, for safekeeping or for the preservation of good was observed. What once would never have been countenanced is now the goal, the pursuit, 
all for some empty promise of happiness. Look at the end of verse 28, could not be satisfied. Look at the end of verse 29, was not satisfied. It was empty. I tried their broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. And even as I stooped to drink, they mocked me as I will. Pride, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride cometh, then cometh shame. Proverbs 16, in the verse 18, pride goeth before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. All of that clearly evidenced here. The second thing worthy of our consideration is found in verse 30. How weak is thine heart? She suffered not only from pride, but pride brought about a weak heart. The heart, we're told, is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? From the heart and out of the heart proceed all the issues of life. And so here we see clear evidence of the devastating impact that pride results in. It results in a weak heart. A heart not filled with the right things, a heart not fixed on the right person, a heart corrupted by the things of the world, the things of time. Remember the words of our Lord, where your heart or where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, we see that as God looked upon the earth, a corrupt earth in that time, as he looked upon sinful man, he saw that the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. In Genesis 8 and the verse 15, we are reminded that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Indeed, then, we come to Joshua in the chapter 24 and the verse 23, where Joshua, the leader of Israel at the time, encourages the people to incline their hearts unto God. Why? Because the heart was in the opposite direction. It's a heart that needs to be changed. It's a heart that corrupts so easy. That's why it takes a work of God to take away the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. So pride wreaked havoc. Pride corrupted the heart. The heart dictated then the choices of life. And remember, it wasn't supposed to be like this, for God had found this abandoned child. God had showered his love and affection upon her. God had taken her to be his own, but, but. It's consistent with the scriptural pattern of human behavior, is it not? Despite the very clear evidence of a special relationship between God and man in the book of Genesis Despite evidence of a specific plan he had for man, we see that the schemes of Satan and the choices of man drive a horse and carriage through all that God had planned. Man rejected God's plan. Man spurned God's special covenantal relationship. And despite the abundant, beautiful garden, despite the rule of tending the garden, naming the animals, being a steward of all God's creation, despite enjoying the attention and affection of God on a daily basis, but. What was seen in the Garden of Eden was even more vividly seen in the behavior of the people of Israel. A redeemed people, a chosen people, a separated people, a people with a future a people with, who were part of a great plan, God's plan, a people who enjoyed the affection and devotion of a loving heavenly Father on a daily, on a daily basis, 
a people with a place, a purpose, and a prospect. But, could this be you tonight? Could this be me tonight? So much promise, so much potential, so much blessing and provision, but surely we're encouraged to search our heart tonight. Make sure it's not a weak heart. Make sure it's not being corroded by pride. Tonight, remember where you were when God came to you. Remember where you would be if he had not come to you. Remember all he has done for you. Remember all he has given to you. Remember what he has called you to. Remember where you are going. Remember whose you are. Remember his great matchless love for you. You might ask, how does all of this fit into our study? Well, it's only the first part of this chapter. But I'll give you a little insight into next week for free. For remember, we're speaking of our covenant-keeping God. And so despite all the sin and the shame Israel we're now found in, God's message, God's promise remains unchanged. And that promise is directly connected to the next of our covenants. Make no mistake about it, unbelief dishonors God, but it never derails God. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, he was ever faithful. Despite their betrayal, he remained committed. And so tonight we remember that he is the ever faithful one. It means tonight that we can proclaim him as the one who would and will fulfill all his promises to Israel. Tonight I remind you that he will fulfill that which he has promised to you because he is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Remember Jehovah is his name a name of authority, a name of supremacy, a name of eternal existence, a name of self-existence, a name for the Holy One, a name for the unchangeable one, a name for the infinite one, a name for the one who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, a name for the all-sufficient one, a name for the one who was, who is, and who is to come, a name for one who can, but undoubtedly a name for one who will. A name for our God. Our covenant-keeping God. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we pray that thou would bless these words to our heart tonight and help us to rejoice in a God who never fails. Help us to search our own hearts. Help us to root out that pride that corrupts. And help us to ensure that we are standing strong upon thee and upon thy word. Help us, O Lord, to do that which thou hast bidden us to do. We're thankful, Father, that thou art the faithful one, the ever-faithful one. O Lord, help us to be just that little bit more faithful to thee. Grant us that grace that overcoming strength. Grant us, O Lord, the victory to live for thee in a way which honors thee. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake alone. Amen.